Welcome back to part two of our ransomware series. So if you haven't gotten a chance to check out our previous episode, we had invited J.R. Goldman, lead sales engineer, to talk about ransomware. And because there's just so much to talk about when it comes to ransomware, we actually decided to make this a two-part episode. So in the previous episode, we talked about exactly what ransomware is, how it's spread, and what impacts it can have on a business. We had just left off with Dan asking JR what solutions you can put in place beyond just training your users to help prevent ransomware. So now, let's pick up right where we left off. And I think a lot of times, you know, we're known, right? Like we started as a virtualization company. And like you said, you know, that enables some sort of security. But um, I think a lot of customers who know us for our traditional products don't really see us as a security company and, and the whole security stack that we have at Citrix. So I'm sure we could do a, a full two hours just on everything, right? And going through every single product. But maybe could, could you tell us a little bit about some of the security-specific products that we offer at Citrix? Yeah, most definitely. So um, every single one of our products can be architected in a way that you know, has security in mind and, and not necessarily security, but layers of protection or even ways that we can help customers reduce risk, you know, stemming from virtualization, obviously being a core technology, you know, if you just look at what we can do on the authentication side of the house, you know, anything from n-factor authentication, n-factor authentication, um, multi-factor, single sign-on is a great tool as well, you know, from a security perspective, anytime a user doesn't have to enter a password is a good thing. Uh, FIDO2 biometric authentication, right? Another another potential way that we can close some of those gaps, uh, even to things like uh, context access, uh, context-based access, federation. These are just technologies that many customers own within the virtualization stack uh, on itself. But if you ex expand that to other stories, you know, endpoint management, you know, being able to provide um, micro VPNing on a, a BYO device, uh, separating corporate applications from personal, right? If the personal applications become infected, maybe we can prevent the corporate applications from also being contaminated. Um, content collaboration has file versioning. <laughs> if all of my files within, within ShareFile or Content Collab get encrypted, uh, I can roll back to a previous version. You know, and so, sorry, and, and from, from that one aspect on content collaboration with, with file versioning, um, in prepping for this podcast and learning more about ransomware, uh, I, I have a uh, I have a, a NAS at you know for my my all my home files. You know, like we started talking about you know it, you know photos and that over the years. So my Synology, I was like, I wonder if this has file versioning. It's like, holy crap, it does, and it wasn't enabled. I'm like, all right, we're turning that on because <laughs> because that that's my concern is like I. I like to think that I know what I'm doing and what I shouldn't be downloading and installing on my endpoint device, but do my kids. And that's a big risk. And, you know, no one's perfect. So there's a chance that I'm going to eventually download something that could infect my, my home machine. So I've, I've set up file versioning. But what I'm kind of curious about is, you know, I've always pretty much worked from home. So it's, you know, I'm not interacting, you know, on, on you know, company networks and that. If if there's a device on a network that's someone downloaded and infected, can that device then infect other devices? So then if you took your device home 
it would then infect your home network? It can, yeah. In certain types of ransomware, it definitely can. Um, so, you know, from a personal perspective, uh, if, if your kids do uh, download that, that ransomware payload or something of that nature, you know, the first thing you do, if, if you can, is, is cut off your network, right? You know, kill the router, kill the modem, um, something to I turn off the device, right? Something to isolate it as best as you can, at least initially to help limit or prevent the spread. Because as the devices can talk to one another, it is possible for them to share that, that information. Now you extrapolate that to a business, um, shutting off the network is a really big deal uh, and causes a significant denial of service. Now, the other thing too is, you know, will an organization know that ransomware is spreading? Will they be able to respond quick enough? And if they do know, are they willing to basically nuke their network uh, or, you know, power everything off, which effectively can shut off the business? Um, it's, it's a really tough conversation. And I think that's why too, there's so much fear around it. Uh, it is, it is an unexpected major disaster it has a potential to be a major disaster, uh, especially when customers are not prepared to deal with it. And I think you made a very valid point, JR. Um, a lot of times, right. You may have a malicious attacker and you might not even be aware of it, right. It may be weeks, months, years where they're exfiltrating data and you're completely, you know, in the dark. And I know from that perspective, security analytics can help from, from a Citrix perspective. So can you talk a little bit about how, with security analytics, we can provide some of that visibility, right? I mean, I'm not saying we provide everything, but, but some of that visibility to show that maybe you have a malicious attacker or something going on that's out of the norm. Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, analytics, security analytics from Citrix is really this kind of overarching perimeter of intelligence that's wrapping your workspace. You know, everything you're delivering through Citrix is can be protected with analytics. And there's lots of different tools out there that give you information. Uh, Sims being the largest one that are typically used in the security space. And I'm not saying don't have a SIM because you absolutely should. The challenge with SIMs is they're reporting on everything. And so what tends to happen is administrators and security teams sometimes get alert fatigue where they're getting 10,000 security events a month, a week in some cases. And so things get missed, right? If It's like if you're getting notifications on your phone every five minutes, you're probably going to miss the important ones. Security analytics from Citrix is really designed to reduce that alert fatigue for one, it's agentless, so we don't have to install another agent on a server and possibly uh, impact user density or the bottom line. But it's looking for very specific things within our own products, very specific things, such as in this case, like a ransomware event, uh, a large uh, amount of encryption of files or decryption of files or uploading of files or downloading of files, very specific things. And then not only alerting on that information, which is it's great, I need to know that this is happening, but then taking actions to prevent it. So such as quarantining a user, notifying IT, locking devices, locking accounts, so that if a ransomware event happens at 4 a.m. on a Saturday, you know, by the time you wake up and get to work on Monday to respond, you know, your SIM would, would be, you know, red and, and flashing all these lights and beacons at you. Uh, analytics from security might have already responded, um, you know, proactively by taking some actions there. So, JR, I know we talked about how one of the ways that 
attackers can come in is through like phishing emails or websites that users access. So from a Citrix perspective, is there anything that we can do to help mitigate this risk when it comes to these uh, malicious links? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, even one of our newest technologies, um, secure internet access essentially can take web traffic uh, from anywhere, not, not necessarily just the data center, but even from, from endpoints and whatnot, can send it to this global cloud service, sanitize it, and then send that traffic back to the end users. And so, you know, that's, that's helping us with customers kind of build towards the Gartner SASE framework where we can have network security and optimization and resiliency all in, in one centrally managed place. One of the cool things about secure internet access is that we can do malware isolation, malware sandboxing as well. So admins can check, uh, you know, a, a malicious email or check a malicious link uh, against the engines that are built into the SIA service uh, for malware and for other uh, malicious agents. What's also interesting about it too is, you know, we're also we're always protecting, um, you know, the web and web traffic uh, with the SIA service, but when we think about the web itself, it could be an entire web page or website that is maybe blocked or redirected. It could also be the content on that page. So, you know, Facebook is like a great example or, or sort of the gray listed sites is organizations allow certain, certain sites to, you know, for users to access Facebook, social media could be one of them. Maybe there's a legitimate reason. Maybe we have a social marketing team. Maybe it's just more of a work-life balance and we want uh, employees to be happy. Facebook may not be a malicious site, but if a user takes one of those, you know, one of those like BuzzFeed quizzes, you know, what kind of potato are you or whatever it might be, you know, that could have a, a, a malware package embedded in it. So not only I'm, can we protect the website, but we can protect content within the site itself. I'm a, I'm a red potato, by the way. <laughs> Japanese sweet potato. <laughs> so what, what you mentioned with, with secure internet access that it's a, it's a, this global cloud service. Why? Why is that important versus you know some of these on-prem solutions that could do similar activities? Well, it really helps solve the problem that we were talking about before, where IT has kind of become decentralized, right? Where especially with COVID, I have this this use case to spin up workloads in a public cloud, which means I have an on-prem data center. I've got a public cloud, Azure, AWS, Google. Maybe I've got hybrid. Uh, maybe I've got web and SaaS-based applications. How do I? How do I close those air gaps and give me some assurance that you know the traffic between uh, users connecting to my cloud data center, my on-prem data center, in between is protected, um, is secure, and so it's it's a really nice way to have a centralized security posture that doesn't rely on hardware, like a traditional firewall might, in a decentralized IT world. Um. No, that, that's that's really interesting, JR. Another thing that I think we've seen just across different industries is the, I would call it the explosion of SaaS applications, right? Traditionally, we, we saw that the number one app that was delivered via Citrix was an Internet Explorer or a browser, right? And now there's different ways of doing that, right? Providing the a, a similar outcome, um, and, and just with the explosion of SaaS applications. So can you tell us a little bit more just about like the secure browser solution and secure workspace access that we provide and how that mitigates some of the ransomware risks? 
Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we, we talked a lot about VDI and virtualization as a core technology to Citrix, and, and certainly that still holds true, and VDI makes sense where it makes sense. But we recognize that many organizations are, like you said, moving towards web and SaaS-based applications. And when I think of traditional zero-trust models, a lot of focus is on, you know, if, if you think of a zero-trust and what zero-trust is at its simplest form, never trust and always verify. So, you know, we don't inherently grant access. Uh, we don't inherently uh, assume trust, right, for anything, any user, device, network. The challenge with most zero-trust models is that they tend to focus purely on authentication. So when I think about something like a web application or a SaaS app, sure, I may have conditional access into that application. I may have MFA. I may have, uh, you know, even biometric access. But once I'm in the session, if the user's behavior changes, then what happens? And that's where a lot of zero trust models fall short. And I think Citrix has a really good story around it, especially in the guise of protecting against ransomware and things like that from the web. SWA is a great technology in itself because we can do single sign-on, we can do advanced authentication. We can also do browser isolation uh, where we can basically say, hey, I'm gonna send certain traffic to the Citrix Cloud service, the browser hosted in Citrix Cloud. It's a disposable throwaway hardened Linux browser that doesn't allow a user to download or print or cut, copy, paste, or save locally or browse externally or take screenshots. All of that's protected. And oh, by the way, if it does become infected, it's you know as disposable as a set of gloves at a doctor's office, right? As soon as the user clicks the X on the tab, that browser is gone, the remnants are gone. And all the while, it's not running in my network, it's running on someone else's network in an isolated fashion in a read-only browser. So, you know, when I think of providing access to a web or SaaS application, browser isolation is a great technique to do so, as well as advanced authentication with SWA. And then if you really wanna get fancy, you can layer on things like analytics, like we talked about. You can also layer on SIA, uh, the secure internet access piece for really the unsanctioned apps or the shadow IT, the apps that we don't have visibility into. You know, if users are going to be spending time on their browser, then it, it becomes a really interesting story about protecting the browser. Another technique would be the embedded browser service. You know, all within that workspace app client is having an embedded browser separate from my main browser, again, with the same or similar isolation techniques. So I, I know how, you know, when Citrix talks about, you know, like secure workspace access and secure internet access, it's the secure workspace access is for those sanctioned SaaS and web apps. And then secure internet access is for everything else. Why is there a difference between the two? Is there a difference between a SaaS app and the internet, you know, from a security perspective? Yeah, definitely, right? Um, and, and the big thing in my eyes is visibility, right? One, we know about one, we don't know about. And so, you know, years ago when, when, uh, when ShareFile kind of was first onboarded to Citrix and we acquired that technology content collab now, you know, we spent a lot of time talking to customers about the Dropbox problem, which was if I don't provide my users with a, a seamless and, you know, interesting and, and, and a good experience tool to use to share files and collaborate, they will circumvent IT altogether and they will use something like consumer-based apps or Dropbox or Box or whatever 
you know, uh, you know, to share their files and folders. And sometimes that that could mean corporate data, sensitive data, um, data that should be uh, confidential in nature. The Dropbox problem is sort of the same problem we're seeing now with customers with shadow IT in that maybe the users don't have tools to do their job or the right tools or the tools that they're given aren't providing the best experience. Uh, maybe they just have a browser in front of them and they get distracted and they want to use personal applications to do their job that might not be approved by IT or on IT's list. You know, we might not be funneling in that information to our SIM or into our global analytics platform uh, from the applications we don't have visibility into control over. So, you know, a lot of these, uh, especially ransomware, a lot of ransomware comes from the web. I mean, I think it's like 90 plus percent of all malware and ransomware attacks come from the web. But we can only see so much in the sanctioned apps. So really where SIA's value is, is everything else on the internet I can have protection and visibility into, whereas before I didn't. Mm, I, 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 I get that. It's those sanctioned apps, IT knows about it. It's, you know, they're being, you know, the company's paying for licensing and it's, it's a, some type of business app that a lot of users are, are going to be accessing. So you want to have, you know, extra security around those to prevent the data exfiltration, you know, preventing people from downloading or copying and pasting or printing and, and all that. Whereas everything else on the internet that hasn't been sanctioned by IT, like you're saying, it, it can make your job easier. Um, so you don't want to take that away, but you need some level of security around it, you know, not to the effect that you would do for a sanction app, but you still need to protect the users. And, and also protect the user experience. Cause I think that's something that's, that we do very well at Citrix that honestly is not emphasized enough when, you know, when we're having security conversations is, is user experience and security are always in a very delicate balancing act. And if you lock something down to the point that it's, it's just, it's not a good experience, users will circumvent IT. They will find other ways to do their job and that can create a bigger problem. So, you know, we, we, we love to talk in terms of things like frictionless security, which is where analytics is great. If a user's behavior changes, then the system interacts, right? It's continuous, it's continuous authentication based on the risk that's presented rather than, you know, something like uh, a system that's maybe challenging a user to re-authenticate every five minutes, which could hinder the experience. And, you know, frankly, they'd probably find something else. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because before I worked at Citrix, which seems like forever ago, um, I interned at a bank. And, you know, with banking, I think it, it's, they're extremely security conscious for, for obvious reasons, but they made it to a point where it was so locked down that from an employee perspective, sometimes it was hard to get certain things done. And, and I know from experience, there was colleagues who would tell me of all these ways that they circumvented IT to find ways to be productive, right, outside of the working hours and if they were at home or if it was a weekend. And now that I'm in IT, I'm like, that's crazy. That that opened it up so much more for vulnerabilities that, you know, um, instead of, of giving them solutions that would still make them productive and where they could still keep security. Hey, I got a uh, message on my screen. I don't know if you guys see that too. Yeah, I just saw it. That's why it threw me off. Yeah. Um, I it sounded so seen. good too before this thing popped up. I was like, she's <laughs> on a roll. I know I saw that and it threw me <laughs> off. Alrighty, so 
you probably heard me just trail off at some point and lose my train of thought. And so I'm going to have JR share why that happened. JR, take it away. While we were not attacked by ransomware, it did feel like that, which was very ironic. Uh, essentially what happened was, was the recordings cut off uh, and we thought we lost all of the audio. And I think any one of us would have paid the ransom in order to get back that recording. So I, I completely empathize with customers who can't get to their data or can't get to their recordings uh, <laughs> because it sucks. <laughs> Definitely agree. I was about to start crying. Um, so with that, I guess I'll have I have one more final question, and then we can wrap it up um, on this super awesome episode. Uh, so I know we talked about a ton of different Citrix technologies that can help prevent ransomware, can help make you aware of ransomware. Um, and, and I'm sure listeners are thinking, wow, that's a lot. And I probably can't implement every single thing that JR just mentioned. What is a good starting point? Or, or oh, where on. should they start? Come is on, that a Anna. terrible question? No, it's a good <laughs> question. But challenge, challenge the listeners. You need to implement every Citrix technology. Every Citrix technology. Dan, come on. You've been out of the field for way too long. And you think that they're going to implement every single thing right off the bat. <laughs> Give them a little bit of a break. <laughs> I would say, yeah, turn on all the things. Um, you know, look, there's lots of buttons that you can push. Um, ultimately, what it's going to boil down to is um, your maturity as it pertains to your cybersecurity presence. Um, and I don't say that as customers being immature if they haven't turned on these things, but there's an actual framework, a security maturity framework. Um, that kind of helps guide customers through the process of where they might be and where they might be going um, and kind of understanding, really having a, a reality check with yourself today. What are, what are my gaps and what are my areas of concern? Um, really looking at those and then trying to take more of a holistic perspective and keeping up with the news and the trends and seeing, okay, these are my current gaps, but from an outside perspective, what are some things that I should be thinking about that I don't know? And I guess if I could leave you with, with one thing, it's Citrix, no matter which button you turn on, can definitely help get you there. But I think the biggest reason why we help get customers there is because we allow you to be very operationally efficient. If your data center goes belly up, if you have to break glass in case of emergency because of any disaster, ransomware or otherwise, the ability to recover is the most important piece, right? I mean, obviously we wanna prevent it, obviously we wanna identify and detect it, and obviously we wanna respond, but we also, if it happens, have to recover. So I would say expect fail to happen. Expect every piece of technology that you own to break or to not work or to be possibly compromised and have a contingency on how to recover from that. Have offsite backups, have offline backups. Uh, Citrix Cloud is a great tool to spin up a new environment immediately and connect resources immediately so that the disasters or the fail is less impactful. Isn't that one of uh, like Amazon's big things is expect it to fail? Expect it to fail, yeah. Yeah, and, and really you should, you know, in, in your personal lives, in, in, your, in your business. I mean, expect things to fail and 
Will I know when it fails? Will my users know who to call if something fails or breaks? Will I be able to recover? You know, these are really important questions and they're hard questions to ask and to think about. But, you know, we just experienced a mini outage on this podcast, right? And we didn't expect it to fail. We certainly didn't prepare for it. We did recover nicely, which was cool. Um, but, you know, these things happen. Technology, even our own, it, it can fail. It can break. Things can go wrong. Things can be exploited. Things you didn't expect can happen. And so having the right strategy and, and here's the other thing too. Customers may have the best DR strategy in the world, but they don't test it until something goes wrong. And it's really, really important to do that testing before something goes wrong to know that your DR plan works. Because um, essentially ransomware, like any other disaster, is, is another DR event. And now we're going to get into part two of our rapid fire questions. What was the best thing that happened to you in 2020? Um, so my 2020 goal was, hey, COVID sucks. This, this little global pandemic thing is really annoying. I want to learn a new skill. I want to do something cool. Uh, and that, for me, was learning how to work on cars. And so I have a car. I learned how to work on it. And I've actually been taking it to the racetrack, um, which has been a blast. And uh, it's something that I didn't think I could ever do. But I'm really my, my, my question that when you were going to you said you were working on cars is like, does the car still work? <laughs> <laughs> it uh, sometimes uh, you got to know your limits. It has been in the shop, uh, not not by me <laughs> being repaired by other people. But, you know, that's part of the experience. So uh, I, I guess I'll take the uh, the last question is um, from this podcast. Who's your favorite host? Oh man, I think this is one of those scenarios where the recording dropped. Are you guys getting that? <laughs> you both uh, you both have been great. Thank you so much for the the questions. I really enjoyed the conversation today. Political answer. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great political answer, JR. If I didn't know any better, I may have confused you for a politician. <laughs> so thanks again for coming on. This has been an extremely insightful two-part episode series on ransomware. We had a lot of fun, and we will definitely have to bring you back as a guest. Uh, before I let the rest of the listeners go, I do have a quick announcement. We're actually going to be taking a short summer break this next month. So we will be back in September for some great content with awesome speakers. Um, so we will see you then. Mm -hmm.